I had a uh, funny occurrence once when I was eating alone in a cafeteria. A young lady walked up to me and it was clear from her face that she was concerned. And she, she didn't beat around the bush. She immediately said, sir, there's a huge animal on your back. And it, it didn't appear to be a prank. I, I felt like the look in her eye was sincere, that she meant what she said, but there was clearly a language barrier here. And very likely from the words she chose and just by her appearance, I felt like English was probably not her most competent language. So I wondered how in the world could there be a large animal on my back and I didn't know. And so I, I asked her again, she said, yes, there's a huge animal on your back. Well, I took her seriously enough to step outside. I was wearing a jacket and I shook it off and there was a wasp on the back of my jacket. And so now I, I started to understand why she was so concerned. I don't think huge animal was the way I would have said it, but she at least got the message across in a general uh, way that I needed to take care of this. But you wouldn't know simply from the words she chose what was wrong. Now, I, I tell this just to make the point that to some extent, we're always going to have some language barriers uh, as an issue for us. And I, uh, I guess I'm going out on a limb here. That's my prediction for the night. Language barriers are, are going to be with us indefinitely. And not simply because you're speaking to some, someone with a different background or who grew up using a different language. Sometimes there are other reasons for it. That is, for one thing, as you read ancient texts, uh, for example, or even just in current day, translating from one language to another, there's often what we call something lost in translation. That is, there may be the usage of a word in the original language that doesn't have a direct parallel in another language. And so something is lost there. Uh, now, there are other reasons that we have difficulty communicating, not just because of the definition of words, but sometimes there are occasions where people use words that you understand, but in a specific context, there's a concept that's referred to, and then you may not be familiar with it. Maybe you've started a new job, and everybody speaks with various acronyms, and if you knew what each word meant, you know generally what those words mean, but put together, they're talking about something in your industry that maybe you haven't encountered yet. Uh, now, there, there's the definitional difficulty, there's the concept difficulty, but we have communication difficulties for different reasons. Now, uh, there was a challenge Jesus made in Matthew 9 when he was associating with people that the others felt like he should not. And I'm not gonna go through the context there in detail right now, but what he challenged them with was to consider their attitude because they needed to learn a concept taught in the Old Testament. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. And so he defends the, his associating with these people that they thought were unworthy of this, but 
His, his challenge there, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now on a face, the surface level, you might think there's not really a, a contradiction between showing mercy and sacrificing. There's no reason we can't offer both. And so I don't believe Jesus is suggesting that there is some kind of contradiction between the two. But there, there's something tantalizing about the way he says this. There, there is actually quite a lot to learn about this concept of mercy and not mere sacrifice based on the way we can observe this in the Old Testament. In fact, this word mercy here is one of the words that is suffering from this um, lost in translation challenge. Not that it's wrong, just that there was a way that this word is used in the Old Testament in a very large number of times, over half of which are in the Psalms, but I believe it's over 150 times. And there's something here that is a little difficult going from the Hebrew to the Greek to English. I want to try to take up the challenge tonight to at least get the general meaning of this, what it is that this word mercy means. Now, I want to do this in terms of a case study example. Because sometimes we can pull out the lexicon, we can pull out dictionaries, and that, those are all extremely helpful, and we want to do that in a few minutes. But sometimes you might have a, a difficulty with a definition, a difficulty with a concept that's best seen through examples. And I want to do that tonight in terms of a case study on God's covenant faithfulness as seen in 2 Samuel 7. This is a text where David is interested in doing something for the Lord, and it wasn't the Lord's intention that David be a part of this particular project. And the Lord responds by pointing out he has other plans for David that were far beyond what he ever expected. So I want to look at this uh, case study tonight based on 2 Samuel 7. I want to uh, see what the original text says here in 2 Samuel 7. I want to set the table a little bit for all the things that are happening there. And then I want to go through some, some of the ways that this covenant and God's faithfulness to it are traced in a further history of the Old Testament. Uh, and then finally, we want to wrap up at the end with some applications for us. So let's look at 2 Samuel 7. Now, first of all, you might wonder in terms of the context, when did this happen? Uh, it says that David was enjoying rest from his surrounding enemies in verse 1. And so David had frequent conflicts with the Philistines. He had several enemies uh, around, such as Moab and Edom, and he was successful in campaigns against them. But there would be a conflict coming up in sh uh, shortly in future chapters, a war with Ammonites and Syrians, and it's very likely that that had not happened yet because what happens after that war was anything but rest from his enemies. Most likely what's happening here was before that. Now what David is interested in doing is building a house for the Lord that is a physical temple and David feels compelled to do this because the Lord has blessed him so richly and yet the temple lies, uh, or well the, the Lord's ark is under a mere tent. And so David is compelled to do something about that. So let's look at a, just briefly what is it that's been going on with the, the ark and the, the tabernacle. Well, we, we learned from 1 Samuel that there was the occasion early on in the book 
when the ark was captured by the Philistines. Uh, we're not going to go into detail on that, but just to say that uh, the priesthood suffered uh, a lot of losses that day, including uh, Eli's sons. The tabernacle and Shiloh basically were destroyed in that same conflict, and we learned that especially from Psalm 78 and then a couple of times in Jeremiah 7 and 26, that it wasn't simply a, a uh, destruction of the tabernacle, it was a destruction of Shiloh, and uh, virtually no one even lived there after this. Now, when the ark had been captured by the Philistines, it returned from, uh, from that area, and the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim for quite a long time. It stayed there, really, it seems, until David moved the capital to Jerusalem, and we saw that in 2 Samuel 6. We're not going to uh, go through that tonight. After a bit of time, that is, after the ark had returned to Israel uh, from the Philistines in uh, 1 Samuel 6, there was the uh, establishment of the tabernacle at Nob, and you see that in 1 Samuel 21, and that does seem to be the site of the tabernacle until what happened at Nob when Saul slaughtered the priest because he felt like they were not loyal to him. And then the tabernacle was established at Gibeon. Now, however, in spite of all of that with the tabernacle, the ark, for all we can see about it, remains at Kiriath-Jerim and has been under a tent for, until David moves it to Jerusalem. But still, it's not under a proper structure of sorts. Now, the Lord has not uh, shamed them over this. The Lord had not previously instructed that they needed to build a tabernacle or a more proper structure for the ark. But David wants to do this. And so he inquires about it in first, or 2 Samuel 7, verse 2. He, he goes to Nathan, and David shows an attitude here that we admire. There's something to imitate here. Uh, it says in verse 2, see, uh, David is talking to Nathan the prophet. He says, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, let's pause here for a moment. You see here that David sees something that's a bit out of balance, that the king is living in a fine house while the ark is under a very humble tent. And David does seem to show a recognition that what you spend your resources and your time and your money on shows something about your priorities. And it's important to David to do something to repay the Lord for all of his great blessings on him, and he wants to be a part of this. Now, David doesn't just take it upon himself to start this project. He does the right thing, and I can't actually imply any blame on David because he goes to the Lord's prophet, and he wants direction about this to make sure that this would be pleasing to God. And so he's not going to act on his own, and this was a, a difficult lesson that was learned in the previous chapter as they were moving the ark. Uh, before we act, we need to inquire, has the Lord spoken about this? And in this case, he's asking for God's direction. Now, what we see from Nathan's answer is something that we don't admire. There's, this is something to avoid because Nathan is speaking unilaterally here in verse 3 when he says, go do that all that is in your heart. The Lord is with you. And now, on the one hand, it seems what could be more reasonable than the effort that David is suggesting? That is, from the human point of view, building an ark for the Lord, who could object to this? And yet, even the Lord's prophets can't speak for God. And this was, in fact, not God's intention for David. David was identified as a man of war. It was not God's plan for David to build this temple. Now, David's son would be the one to do this. 
but it simply wasn't God's will for David to do it. God didn't object to the temple itself. In fact, he tells David, uh, Solomon refers to this in 1 Kings 8, that God even said, you did well that it was in your heart to build the temple. It was the right attitude, but it wasn't God's will for him to do it. And this is something that uh, was a difficult lesson David had learned in the previous project of moving the ark. And David, uh, or sorry, Nathan rather, needs to learn from that lesson now. Because we can't go by simply what's reasonable. And you see other occasions in the Old Testament, such as when uh, some of the nearby enemies came to Joshua pretending to be from a long ways off. And they came with what seemed to be such a reasonable suggestion. They say, uh, let's make an alliance. We're from far away. See, look at our moldy, crusty bread. We couldn't possibly be close neighbors. In fact, they were close neighbors, and they were simply trying to avoid the punishment and the destruction of being rooted out of the land as, that they otherwise would have faced. And what, what it, what's criticized of Joshua there and the other elders on that occasion is that they did not inquire of the Lord before they acted. They went ahead and made a covenant. Now, just keep that in the back of your mind as we study the rest of our lesson today, because God did require them to be faithful to it, but they definitely were to be criticized for the way they handled it. Now, by contrast, this is not the attitude we see of Moses. In occasions in the book of Numbers, we're not going to go to look at those in chapter 9 and chapter 27. There were some interesting cases that people needed direction on. Moses didn't speak unilaterally. He said, let me inquire of the Lord, and the Lord did, in fact, provide the direction they needed. Now, as we go further along here, uh, verses 4 to 7 in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord has to correct this presumption that Nathan has made. And as we said, it wasn't that the Lord objected to the temple itself, but this wasn't God's will for David to be a part of. And so he, he goes on to, to say, I have always been a part of humble dwellings. I've never required a especially fancy temple or tabernacle all the time that you've been that you've been with me in fact um, how many times do you even see in the books of Samuel and other parts of the Old Testament that the Lord is the one who dwells between the cherubim now we, this is something we've been studying about in the book of Ezekiel recently that God has this chariot throne of the of the cherubim the Lord dwells in things that we couldn't possibly imagine. Where, where is the house that you could build for him? Now Stephen refers to this in his sermon in Acts 7 as he refers to verses in Isaiah 66 that heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you would build me? The Lord points this out subtly here that I've always uh, been content to dwell in humble dwellings. The Lord likes uh, humbleness after all. But besides that, God can't be contained in a merely physical place. But the Lord does have a lot more to say about this. Not only would David not build a house, a literal house for the Lord, but the Lord is going to build a house for David, meaning a dynasty. He says, I will set up your seed after you. So in these following verses here, verses 12 to 14, he goes on to explain that there would be ruling descendants of David and the, the next one to follow him on the throne would in fact be the one to build the temple. And he says, I will be a father to him and he will be my son. And we, we see some things that are even used in Messianic references here, especially in the way the New Testament refers to this in Hebrews 1, that God would use the same lineage of David, the same dynasty to bring the Savior into the world. It had been chosen already that it would be through the seed of Abraham. Now he's being even more specific 
and, and he's going to make sure that the Messiah, the Savior, will come through the descendants of David. It would not be Saul or through Saul's sons, but the Lord had made this determination now. And in verse 14, he commits to it at a level that he even says, even if your son commits iniquity, he says, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But in verse 15, but my steadfast love, or your translation may say my mercy, will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And this was the Lord's response to David. He received something much more generous than he had even been proposing to do for the Lord. That is, uh, the Lord had not, well, the Lord promises something to David that went far beyond the level of commitment that David even had suggested doing. Now, I just took that away for a few moments here as well. There's uh, this permanence to David's office that through his sons, they would continue forever. Now, he would not cancel the covenant, as we say. And this was something that you saw uh, as quite a contrast with Saul. The kingdom and the throne of David would remain forever. That is indefinitely to the end of the age or to eternity, depending on the point of view. And more on that in a minute. Now, David uh, follows up with a very majestic prayer after these events. The rest of the chapter, starting in verse 18, David is truly humbled by what he hears from the prophet here, by uh, God and his generosity, the kindness that he's pledging to show David and his sons. And he, he goes through a very majestic prayer on the greatness of God. He goes on to point out that Israel is already highly exalted. There is no other nation like, like the, the Jews had here. Uh, uh, Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20, the Lord declares his word to Jacob and his uh, word to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation, and regarding his ways, they have not known them. The children of Israel were already in a highly privileged position, and David already recognized that. But then for him to, to be honored above all the other nations of the earth beyond that, to be one whose throne would never truly come to an end is truly overwhelming, and David's prayer shows that. And this is a refreshing sense of humility that is often lost on people. And in fact, the, the impact of this promise and this commitment God made to the Jews was lost on many of them throughout the rest of their history, unfortunately. Uh, starting in verse 25, David then goes on to make an appeal for God to fulfill his word, to do uh, exactly what he has said. And David shows that he does trust God to keep his word, to be faithful to it as he had uh, pledged to do. And David seems to recognize that he's simply a vessel in God's kingdom. And, and he follows all, all of this up as to say, please do what you have said. Indeed, the Lord would do that very thing. Now, I wish we could look at this in a little more detail, but David's prayer, I want to come back to this at the very end of the lesson to make an application. So, that's our uh, chapter 7. Now, I want to uh, talk about the concept that we had been discussing at the very beginning. There is something about the, the way it's phrased in 2 Samuel 7, verse 15. But my mercy will not depart from him. If you're using the King James or the New King James, it probably says mercy there. 
If you're looking at the American Standard Version, it may say loving kindness. There's nothing wrong with, with those expressions. For one thing, the Septuagint, which is the translation of the Hebrew into Greek that the apostles and the Lord himself often quoted from and paraphrased in the New Testament, was from the Septuagint. And the New Testament does, in fact, use a word that's translated as mercy. So we don't have any problems with using mercy. It's just that there's a way that this word is used that means something beyond what we often think of as mercy in our English language. So let's talk about this. The, the Jews had three main concepts of mercy. Now I also want to uh, point out here, I may be missing some because I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I only know how to look things up in a book. I'm not someone who uh, knows Hebrew, so don't ask me to read Hebrew for you. I'll tell you right now, I can't. But I can at least point out uh, some of the ways that these main words are used in the Old Testament, find what they mean, and then try to see how they're similar to this one. There th these three main words I want to call attention to, one of them, kanan. Now this one seems to be somewhat similar to our concept of grace, our concept of showing favor, uh, being moved with pity. Now that this is not the same word that they used for compassion. Now that would be rakam. Um, but neither one of those words are the same as the word that's used in 2 Samuel 7, uh, verse 15. I'm sorry, the slide is incorrect. It should say 7.15. This is the word hesed. Now, th this word has some difficulty going directly from Hebrew to English in a one-to-one -one word parallel. And so translators will often use different words depending on which version you're looking at to try to get the message across. So there's these components of strength, steadfastness, and love. And so the Lord refers to my mercy, meaning my, my, he says, my hesed will not depart from you. Now that is best translated as his covenant faithfulness. That is his devotion to this promise. He's saying, I will not remove it from you. That would be in contrast, as we say, to what he did with Saul. That is, there was not an unconditional promise made to Saul and in a sense, some of this is conditional to David, at least in terms of the physical nation. More on that in a minute. But there was a commitment being made here of strength, steadfastness, and enduring promise that he says, my faithfulness to this covenant is not going to end. Now, now this covenant faithfulness is used not only between God and a man, it's also used between two men that would make a covenant. And you see this in 1 Samuel 20, between David and Jonathan, that they made a covenant between the two of them. If either of the two of them should find themselves as occupying the throne, they committed not to cut off the descendants of the other. And th this is the word that's used there, that they made a, they, a binding hesed kind of agreement. This is, a, this is also, however, the same, kind of, the same word that's used in the prophets. If you look in Ma, uh, Micah 6, verse 8, this is the, sort of a summary of the message of the prophets in one verse as he says, uh, What does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to walk humbly with your God? To, but the other word in between there is, he says, to, to do justly, to love mercy. His word mercy there is hesed, that is to love covenant faithfulness. In other words, to be true to the covenant. In other words, this was also expressed in Hosea 6, verse 6. When it, now this is the origin of the quotation we looked at earlier from Matthew 9, where he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What he's saying is, I desire 
hesed, that is covenant faithfulness. So that means there wasn't a problem with with the people offering sacrifices, except they were doing it as a mechanical and merely rote repetitious way. They weren't doing it with any covenant faithfulness behind it. In other words, away from the altar, away from the temple worship, they did however they pleased. That's not worship that pleases God. Now, a lot of people will twist this expression, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, to mean something that it does not mean. They often use this to justify uh, behavior such, um, that is just like those ancient Jews did to live hypocritically throughout the week, and yet they, they donate generously to poor people in other continents. They, uh, they give to the poor. They, they do all these generous things. They're showing mercy, but he says he's not really interested in the nitty-gritty faithfulness other than that. Well, that's completely false. That, that's turning this word into something it, it never meant. Hosea and Micah both are pointing out there's an essential need here that to love covenant faithfulness to your God is what he requires of you. Now, Jesus also made a, same refer, or a similar reference to this verse in Hosea and uh, Matthew 12, which would be similar to the one we saw in Matthew 9. But then I also want to look at uh, Romans 2 because there's a reference here to... Psalm 62, verse 12. And so in Romans 2, what we see here is a, a summary of how not only had the Gentiles lived unfaithfully before God, but he's going to start to discuss soon that the Jews had done so as well. And so no one has lived legally in a way that pleased God, and that's overall what's happening in the context here. But in in, uh, Romans 2, verse 4, he says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Then verse 6, he quotes from Psalm 62, verse 12. He says, He will render to each according to his works. Now, in Psalm 62, just before this very phrase, he calls him the God of Hesed, the God of mercy, who renders to each according to his works. That is, he's made a covenant. If you're unfaithful to it, it's very cut and dry what needs to happen here. On the other hand, if you are faithful to his covenant, then it's also very clear that the Lord will be faithful to his side of it as well. This is one of the characteristics of God that is uh, expressed in the discussion God gives Moses in Exodus 34. And, and what's interesting about it, in this short stretch of context between uh, Exodus 33 and 34, God uses all of these expressions that we have on the screen to, to describe his character, his kanan, his that is his show of favor and pity, his compassion and his hesed. And, and, and then uh, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, he calls himself the Lord God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. These are the words he uses to, de- to describe himself, and these are frequently used in other parts of the Old Testament as a, a, a reference to God's covenant faithfulness. This is, the, this is the background of what God is promising to David. He's saying, I've made a commitment to you, and I'm going to be faithful to it regardless of what happens after this. Now, there are going to be some difficulties in understanding how he would be faithful to this, especially through some of the very monumental events that they would go through. 
However, God would be faithful to this covenant, and Moses would need to even refer to it, to God's character, as he had described it in Exodus 34. There are other times the psalmist would refer to this same characteristics of God, but you promised David, and it was difficult at times to reconcile their circumstances to what they understood God to have said. But the Lord reconciles all of this for us through his prophets, and I want to go through some of that with us as well. Now, before we get to that, there, there are elements of this covenant that were conditional. Now, uh, as we had said, this would be the lineage through which the Savior would come into the world. However, God had already made commitments through the law of Moses about the persistence of the physical nation, and there's nothing about this covenant with David that cancels any of that. So, just to be clear, there were promises made in Deuteronomy, for example, that if you are faithful, I will bless you, and uh, there, there will be no end to your prosperity. Your, your, the nation could have existed until now, for all I know, if they had stayed faithful and had followed the law of Moses as they ought to have. Um, however, the God's promise to David here does not cancel any of those parameters. How do I know that? Well, for one thing, David himself explains this to Solomon in 1 Kings 2, shortly before David's passing. He, he reminds Solomon of this, of this covenant, but he also points out, you must be faithful to the law of Moses or else none of, none of your sons are going to remain on a physical throne. Now, God also explains it this way himself to Solomon in 1 Kings 9. So shortly after the dedication speech and prayer, and the, the opening of the temple, God responds to this uh, supplication that Solomon made, and he goes on to do something that very similar to what David had said. David understood it this way, and then the Lord reinforced it in 1 Kings 9. There's nothing about this covenant that gives the, the nation of Israel the freedom or the license to, to be unfaithful because, just because God had promised to keep David's throne online indefinitely. And as we see this, God chastens Solomon for his unfaithfulness. He, uh, we're not going to go through the history of Solomon's life, but we know that Solomon uh, turned his heart away from the Lord. He wasn't faithful because he, he had uh, difficulties with idolatry. And even because of his, suffer his long suffering to David, it's because of that the Lord continued to bless the nation, even though they must have been, they needed to be chastened. God didn't remove the lineage from Solomon and his sons because God had already made that determination. That's where it would be. You see other references that are similar to this in some of the historical books, especially in Second Chronicles. We have a few occasions we're not going to take the time to look at now. But there are other occasions where God points out, I had promised to leave a lamp to David, and in spite of their unfaithfulness, he's going to go beyond the statutory requirement of it, if you will, and to show the, the faithfulness to that pledge that he had made. Eventually, his long-suffering would have to run out, however. But more on that in a minute. So there's also a, a, an element of this that is um, seen in Psalm 132, this is a messianic psalm, and it's even referred to in Acts 2, I believe. The Psalm 132 seems to explain how this would apply to each successive king in David's dynasty, that if their sons are going to remain on the throne, they need to themselves be faithful. In other words, if uh, Rehoboam, for example, wanted to be assured 
that his sons would, would remain on the throne, then Rehoboam needed to be faithful. That was, is a, that's my takeaway from Psalm 132, and this does seem to be the way that the Old Testament refers to it. Now, the Lord was generous because there were many times where there were unfaithful kings, and there was no guarantee that their sons would be anything more than mere placeholders because ultimately all of, the, all of them fell short, and none of them deserved to have the Messiah to come through their sons. But just know that there were some who met the obligation and others who, many others who did not. But th this does seem to be the general pattern. If your sons, then their sons will remain in this royal line. Now, the, the messianic aspect of this covenant was not conditional. And what, what I mean by that is the Lord, as we had said, had already determined the, the Savior would come into the world through the seed of Abraham, but now he's been even more specific. It would also be through David. And so the Jewish nation would have to exist, at least in some form, for that to come into, into a, um, fruition. And so the messianic aspect of it was unconditional. Now, the, trying to reconcile the two is where some of the Jews had difficulties through some of the things that they went through. Um, now, this, um, I'm not going to go through some of these verses here that are on the screen, but just know that some of these verses make references to God's hesed. Take, for example, Isaiah 55, verse 3. He refers to the sure mercies of David. Well, that's the same word here. It's God's sure, steadfast love or God's loving kindness or better understood, as we saw in Psalm 62, God's covenant faithfulness. Uh, th this is all a part of what he had pledged to David. And in this messianic reference here, Isaiah 55, verse 3, the sure mercies of David are even alluded to in the sermon in Antioch in Acts 13. Now, we also see uh, some other occasions where uh, psalmists refer to this. As we say, over half, I believe, of the references to this word occur in the psalms. And you, you see... The, uh, something like this as well in uh, the book of Amos, and we're not going to take the time to go through that now. But just know that to the extent we're talking about the physical kingdom, that was always conditional. That was subject to the law of Moses parameters. But when we're talking about the messianic aspect, the Savior would come into the world, and it would be through David's line. Now, as we, as we had said, there are many times in the Old Testament that you see people that struggled to understand how God's promise could be realized the way that he had pledged to David. Some of this is best seen in Psalm 89. Now, this is a lengthy psalm, and I would love to go through it in detail, but I don't think we're going to take the time to do that tonight. Uh, as far as the timing of this goes, I know there are a lot of expositors who believe that this was written in the days of Rehoboam or regarding the days of Rehoboam. I have my doubts about that for what that's worth because, first of all, just the fact that he's mentioned as, uh, as Solomon was even wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, what is required here is that Ethan had to have lived at least by the time the book of Kings was written, which certainly would have included the era of the exile. So Solomon was wiser than this man, but this man was also renowned for his wisdom or else that comparison wouldn't, made it, uh, wouldn't have made a lot of sense. But the psalm starts with a discussion of praising God for his character, for his faithfulness, praising God for his covenant with David as well, as you see as you uh, move along there, that it, he seems to be building up a situation that it's impossible to contradict the fact that God 
in his very throne is um, based on justice and righteousness. God has promised David. He has sworn he will not relent, as we also saw in Psalm 132. In other words, the, this is the immovable object that we can't just ignore. Now, on the other hand, we have circumstances here that do seem to reflect the exile, and more on that in a minute. But he's, he's trying to reconcile these things, and there must have been many other Jews who had similar sentiments here. And so it does seem difficult to understand how the promise can be fulfilled based on what they've gone through. And he refers to this concept of God's faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness, his mercy, or his hesed throughout the psalm. And he makes so many references to the, sorry, it makes references to God's covenant with David. And he promises, uh, verse 35, he says, just as you said, I will not lie to David. He will be just as permanent as the sun and the moon. More on that in a minute. The last part of the psalm then starts to show it's hard to understand how this covenant can be fulfilled now because he says you've renounced the covenant, you've cast the crown to the ground. It's as if our hedges are broken down. All of our strongholds are in ruins. Verse 42, the enemies are rejoicing. We're always defeated in battle. The splendor of the throne is over. The days of youth shortened. Now, I don't believe at all that he's simply concerned about the persistence of the throne. And I say that because now at the end of the, of the, the psalm here, he makes an appeal. Um, if God's promise to David is broken, we truly have no hope at all. That is, he says, uh, what hope do we even have in the grave if God's promise to David is over? And, and so he's not trying to charge God with doing wrong, but he's making an appeal. Please help us understand this. These times are difficult to understand. But then at the very end of the psalm, he does go on to make an expression of faith. Now, the Lord doesn't leave appeals like this unanswered. And he uses prophets such as Jeremiah to respond to some of these rhetorical expressions that we saw in Psalm 89. God's prophets are going to respond to this, especially Jeremiah 33. We see what we often see expositors refer to as a times coloring, if you will something that they would have been familiar with, objects and institutions of the old law to describe the Messianic age. That is, he talks about the Levitical priest would never have a shortage. There were times in their history where there were shortages, but this would not occur under the new covenant. He says that, um, that Christ would occupy, now Christ of course would occupy this dual office of king and priest, but this is a description of the Messianic age. Now. Uh, he also answers what seems to be the appeal that Ethan had made in Psalm 89, that he says, my covenant with David is as certain as the day in the, in the night. Uh, he reassures the people that the covenant has not been broken, but there is an aspect of it now that's going to be fulfilled spiritually and not physically by the nation itself. There's nothing about this uh, covenant that was truly in jeopardy and the apparent panic of Jews like Ethan, it would seem, that they can't reconcile those, those uh, difficulties, but they can learn to trust God. And this, this is the way that God would, in fact, fulfill this covenant. Now, God's covenant with David gives us hope. I, I realize that we've brushed through a lot of material quickly here, and, and certainly there's a lot more to this than we're going to be able to cover in any detail tonight. But 
one of our takeaways from all of this is that, that God is faithful to his covenants in spite of what people would otherwise observe. Now, in Psalm 69, verse 6, this does seem to be, in fact, a, uh, this is, in fact, identified as a, a psalm of David. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Now, of course, those like Ethan, those others, uh, other Jews who must have seen the, how the captivity apparently ended the nation, apparently the, the captivity in Babylon had made it impossible now for the throne to continue. Well, those people, uh, David seems to anticipate in this verse here. He says, let them not be confounded because of me. Now, Jesus would say something similar in Matthew 11. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended because of me. There are people who also had their trust in Jesus. They trusted, uh, well, their trust was in terms of a physical nation. They thought of him as a different kind of king entirely. But he says, blessed is the one who is not offended or confounded because of me. God's faithfulness to David, we have the benefit of looking back on in history and seeing that God was true to it. Now, there were, in fact, special commitments made to David. And we, we say this because to oppose David was to oppose the kingdom of God itself because David had these special commitments made. And I, I would encourage you to interpret some of the imprecatory statements in Psalms in light of that fact. Now, however, God's faithfulness to David can, uh, persisted in spite of David's sin. And now I just want to reflect on this for a moment. If you consider... 2 Samuel 9, um, well, even before that, one of the concepts of this hesed we learn by the way it's used is a desire to act generously beyond a mere statutory or legally binding commitment. That is, a desire to want to go beyond the very literal things that have been promised and to, be, and to show generosity. You see this from the way that it's used even in 2 Samuel 9. That is, David is asking, is there not someone from Jonathan's lineage that I can show kindness to? And he didn't simply keep from cutting off Jonathan's descendants, but he found the one that was in the most need of help, and he was extremely generous to him. He, he, uh, this, this would be Mephibosheth, and we're not going to go through the details of that. But David felt compelled. There, there was this, uh, the, the way it's expressed there is he felt compelled to show hesed, to show this generosity considering the covenant that he had made with, with Jonathan. You also see in 2 Samuel 10 that as the neighboring king of Ammon had died, this was a king that David had a good relationship with, and David even makes the same kind of expression there. He says, I feel compelled to, to show kindness that, that is even hesed, it's this generosity and faithfulness toward my friend and his sons because he was always loyal to me. And, and so... David uh, responds with kindness in, in a, um, a deep need and compelling need to show kindness because someone had been kind to him, that is, Jonathan and this Ammonite king. What's interesting about that is in spite of what's happened in 2 Samuel 7, in spite of how humbled David felt when God had made this commitment to him and God had promised him things that no other king on earth would enjoy, then 2 Samuel 11 comes along, and David sins with Bathsheba. And 
he also sins against Uriah. He causes unnecessary death to cover up what he had done. Ought he not to have had the same compulsion toward God because of the kindness God had shown him? You see, what we, what we learn here is that God is faithful to us even when we have not been faithful to him. In fact, God has promised us, as, as he not, if uh, we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. And aren't we glad that he is willing to do that? David needed it on that occasion, and we all need it going forward indefinitely. But I want to close in uh, Romans 15, because all of this is summarized very neatly for us in, in some verses there. And in the context, we've read that the, the uh, things written in former times in verse 4 were written for our instruction, that we would learn endurance and have hope through the scriptures. But even beyond that, it's not a, a merely a promise that was made to Jews. This is something that God had made to Gentiles as well. Uh, commitments through the Messiah, the blessings through Jesus weren't merely available to the Old Testament covenant of the Jews, but it would be available to the Gentiles as well. And so this is the point that he's making in Romans 15. He says in verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glory, glorify God for his mercy as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Praise the Lord, all you his Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And then in verse 12, that it's shown that through the root of Jesse, in him the Gentiles will have hope. God's dealings with David give us hope. We understand something about God's faithfulness, about God's covenant keeping, and in the same way we are compelled to keep our covenants with him as well. There may be one or more in our audience tonight that have not made that covenant relationship with, with Christ. And we want to encourage you to consider that tonight. That God's faithfulness, as we read, is to his covenant. That is, he will render to each according to his works. Now, he has also promised that if you repent, if you confess your faith in Christ, and in, in that faith and that, in that belief, if you're baptized, you can put on Christ this very evening. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who believes not will be condemned. Or perhaps you're in the other situation, one that's fallen short like David. As he said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. If there's some way that we can help you tonight, won't you come while we stand and sing?